Unfortunately, we're all going to have to be much more conscious consumers as we look to modify our grid to take climate change into account and as we try really to, to get to fossil-free electricity. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, in February, two severe storms swept across the United States, ultimately hitting the state of Texas hard. These storms caused major power outages, water and food shortages, and dangerous weather conditions, leaving Texans across the state struggling to survive. So who's liable, and was this preventable? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to be discussing litigation, liability stemming from Texas' recent weather crisis, and a host of other issues related to this energy issue. To do that, our guest today is Professor Heather Payne from Seton Hall University School of Law. Professor Payne is an emerging leader in the areas of energy law, environmental law, evolving regulatory policy, and the implications for property, both real and intellectual. Welcome to the show, Heather. Pleased to be here. Well, Heather, let's talk about the overall situation in Texas. We knew weather was coming, weather came, hit hard, and a lot of people were out of power. How did that happen? So Texas is a restructured electricity market. The situation in Texas came about because of a series of failures. And it wasn't really just the electricity system that failed. The majority of electric generation in Texas is natural gas. Unlike many other places that store natural gas, since so much of our natural gas is actually produced in Texas, the electricity generators and others who use natural gas just expect the production will actually continue and serve their ongoing needs for natural gas. No reserves. No reserves in the traditional storage sense of the word. Obviously, lots of reserves, but in the ground. And so what happened in Texas is we actually had a cascading series of failures. First of all, you had incredibly high load on the natural gas system from people wanting to heat their homes. The majority of heat is produced in Texas using natural gas. But the other thing that happened was that the actual production of natural gas diminished. When we produce natural gas, we also produce water. And so if we have the situation where when we're producing that natural gas, the water can freeze, that also actually will end up reducing the amount of natural gas can, that can be produced at that same point in time. And that's what we saw in Texas. So we, we first saw incredibly high load from people needing it to, to heat their homes. And then we also saw production of natural gas out in the fields decreasing because of the fact that lines were getting frozen. Of course, it's not just actually the lines 
during the production, you can also have different points along the delivery system of natural gas freeze as well. And so we had a whole lot of failures in the natural gas system. And then, of course, that then meant that those power plants also couldn't get the natural gas that they needed to produce electricity. So was was Texas completely disconnected from the rest of the grid system in the United States, the other states? I mean, they're physically like an air gap between Texas and the adjoining states to not have any connections? So Texas has very, very limited connections. So it's not that there are none, but really none to speak of. You're getting to an interesting point. In the United States, we have three electricity grids within the continental 48. We have the Eastern Interconnect, the Western Interconnect, and what is managed by ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. And ERCOT really does manage a grid that is separated for all intents and purposes from any other electricity in the United States. So if we have a system that's having issues in the Eastern Interconnect or the Western Interconnect, then there's lots of different power plants that we can draw on for that. We can't move large amounts of power into or out of Texas. Now, with 2020 hindsight, these answers seem kind of obvious. I mean, it seems to everyone's benefit in Texas to be connected with the other grids. And likewise, since we all rely on each other, perhaps even Mexico and to that extent, Canada. But we can even talk about that. But isn't you said it's a series of cascading failures, but is this one failure that could have been prevented? So I think that there's a couple of different ways that Texas going forward could make it so that they don't end up in this situation again, right? So is there technology that exists that can weatherize different parts of a power plant, different types of power plants? Absolutely. Would it be possible to interconnect with either the Eastern Interconnect, the Western Interconnect, or both? Absolutely. If ERCOT and Texas choose to do that, they would come under FERC jurisdiction. And that's one of the main reasons that they have not wanted to interconnect is by making it so that they have no electricity that flows in interstate commerce, then they're not subject to regulation by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Well, that makes total sense. But doesn't that reliability get disproven by the event that just happened? It certainly makes it more difficult for Texas to have a reliable grid going forward if they don't have interconnections. And that makes a lot of sense. In many places, our grids have been designed for the weather that we've had historically, that we're used to having up until this point. And of course, what we know now with climate change is our weather is going to be increasingly erratic. And so Texas would have to probably spend more money and do a lot of additional work to make sure that they weather these kinds of situations appropriately. Well, some of the East, I've read that some of the East Coast companies, especially like one in New Jersey, is investing a billion dollars in storm hardening. 
So storm hardening generally can mean a lot of different things. And yes, that certainly is a trend. It really started with Superstorm Sandy and the fact that we had significant blackouts for a long period of time. Texas and the situation in Texas really was somewhat unique because of the fact that if we have a really good interconnected system, the majority of my weather issues are going to be in the distribution system. They're going to be because wind or ice take out distribution lines. And that's what ends up being the problem. It's very, very rare that we have a situation like we had in Texas, where the issue was that I didn't have enough generation capacity. And so in Texas, I think the question is whether they're going to try hardening completely around that that generation portfolio or whether they're going to to try to do a mix of things, right? And so add interconnection and try to do some some generation hardening. But for for most of the storms in the certainly on the east coast, that hardening is really going into the distribution system rather than generation facilities, because that's what tends to go down. Right. And one of the other problems that Texas has is that it's got all its eggs in one basket. If it mostly relies on natural gas, and now we know that freezing situation is going to prohibit production and increase demand and limit supply, it seems like now is the appropriate time to start turning to other sources of energy. Is that something Texas is going to be looking at? I think it is. But one of the things we have to recognize is that really basically every resource in Texas had challenges during this event. So a lot of people don't realize it, but coal plants actually also have problems when they get really cold. Coal piles will actually freeze. We saw that in Texas. So you saw some coal generation go down. You saw natural gas go down. One of the four nuclear units in Texas actually tripped offline. There was a sensor that hadn't been weatherized. And so because it was saying that the backup cooling system wasn't functional, obviously we we want redundant systems with our nuclear plants. And so that actually went offline for a little bit over a day as well. And then we did have some wind generation that also froze. And again, it's a situation where if any of those resources were weatherized properly, they they could have potentially maintained their generation, but that didn't happen. Well, let's take a look back at, at the notice situation. I mean, there's a 2013 executive office of the president issuing an economic benefits of increasing electric grid resilience to weather outages report, talking about this very same climate change that you're talking about. Now, that came out eight years ago. This is not news. The challenge is that ERCOT manages the grid, but ERCOT does not actually have the ability to mandate that individual power plants weatherize. So Texas is a restructured market. So the transmission and distribution utilities are still regulated monopoly, but the generation plants are not. So Texas, up until this point, has left it up to each individual power plant to decide whether they are going to weatherize or not. ERCOT doesn't have the ability 
just as the grid manager, to force plants to weatherize. That seems like a uh, a bad arrangement. Uh, <laughs> or is that something that, I mean, it's, we're talking about a lot of things that need to be fixed here. Is that something that needs to be fixed as well so that we can have both hands cooperating with each other? I would actually characterize it as a policy choice that Texas has made. And are there things that Texas could do? Absolutely, right? So in terms of weatherizing the actual natural gas production facilities, that would go through the Texas Railroad Commission, who actually has the responsibility over those production facilities. The state legislature could actually mandate that generators in the state weatherize and prepare for these conditions. Right. Do we want to have legislation at this kind of level, or is this something that should be managed by a company that's in charge of this? I mean, we're talking, you know, ministerial versus, you know, field work. Except for the fact that they can only do what they've been given the ability to do. And right now, I would actually argue that ERCOT doesn't have the authority to actually mandate weatherization. Now, the other group that could actually come in and do that is NERC, right? So they're a federal agency, but at the same time, the question is how much they want to do that. But they're going to be looking at this, I'm sure, as well, to see if there's something that they need to be doing, not necessarily just in Texas, but really across the United States with regard to these weather events that will become more severe. So what do the people that are without power for days and without water and without the resources to be able to, how do they deal with this? Unfortunately, I think in a lot of cases, there's not going to be somebody that they can hold liable and and try to actually obtain recompense for their losses from. Because ERCOT only manages the grid, and does have limited authority, it would really go back to the state legislature or to the Public Utility Commission of Texas. Well, and here's a good point to talk about sovereign immunity, because obviously the government officials are going to have it. And there's what a case currently pending be uh, right now to determine whether or not ERCOT, which is a an actual private entity, but still regulated by governmental entities, whether it has sovereign immunity, right? Yes. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see how the Texas Supreme Court comes down on that question. I think Even more importantly, though, is I don't know, even if you can sue ERCOT, given that they're only the ones that are managing the grid, they don't actually have the ability um, or the authority at this point to mandate weatherization or other activities. Even if they don't have sovereign immunity, I'm not sure that that's going to lead to plaintiffs really having a better outcome. Well, that's an unusual defense. What do you call that? The not my department defense? They can only do what they have authority to do. Yeah, well, that's a, you know, look at it from a contract standpoint. As you as an individual say, I contract with you to provide me with electricity and then you don't provide it. How does that, whether what authority the company may or may not have, have any responsibility to the relationship between the consumer and the company? Well, so the retail providers are are the ones that consumers would actually be making a contract with, right? That's so not they ERCOT? don't 
That's not ERCOT. Who is right? that? So, so it depends on that particular person, right? So, so Texas is a completely restructured market, which means that you have power producers, the generators themselves. There are probably somewhere between 500 and 600 of those in the state. And then you've got ERCOT, who's the one who's actually managing the grid. And really what they're doing is they're accepting bids from these generators for how much they want to be paid for their electricity. They're trying to figure out what the demand is in terms of how much customers are going to want. And then they're dispatching based on that. Uh, They're dispatching at the lowest cost possible. But they actually aren't the ones that have a retail relationship with the customer. So then you have retailers who actually are the ones that have the relationship with the individual consumer. And of course, because Texas is fully deregulated, a lot of these consumers have plans that you and I would be very comfortable with, right? It's either a fixed rate or something close to it, perhaps a time of use plan. Other times you do have customers, and it was only a very small percentage, that signed up for plans that would actually basically pass through the wholesale rate, which typically in Texas would be a really good deal. Unfortunately, market fluctuation. Exactly. And of course, during this time, the market price went very, very high. But that's a That's actually how Texas has designed its market. It uses high prices to indicate when more generation is needed. That is amazing. Now, given that you are from New Jersey, how does it work there? How's the regulatory system or how does the relationship between you and, was it PS and GE your system is called? So yes, I'm a PSENG customer. So New Jersey, like many of the Northeastern states, is restructured as well, but not in the same way as Texas. So we still have PSENG is my monopoly service provider for my transmission and distribution. Generation goes through the equivalent of ERCOT for this area, which is PJM. Generation is distributed same way. And then I can also choose to have a different retailer if I would like to. So right now, the town that I live in actually is is participating with a number of other municipalities. And we do have an alternate provider for our retail service, but my bill still comes from PSENG. That's kind of the way mine works out here in California. We have a relationship with Southern California Edison, but they're highly regulated by the Public Utilities Commission and they're also interconnected. Well, we kind of hinted at some liability issues. Let's talk about the lawsuits that are coming down the line. And you've you've said that uh, weather's not gross negligence. Out here in California, we've had a lot of lawsuits against the company uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, up in Northern California that was responsible for failing to maintain and update its system, somewhat different than the situation you're describing in Texas. And they were sued for millions of dollars by the government and by individual people. And now I see that there are lawsuits that have been filed against ERCOT and other regulations. How are those lawsuits going to work out? Yeah, so I actually grew up in PG&E territory. So it is a a different situation in California, I think, because of the fact that both 
PG&E and almost 15 years ago now, uh, San Diego Gas and Electric actually had started, their equipment had started from some fires. SoCal Edison has seen the same situation. And I think really the difference there is that we can tie those wildfires specifically back to equipment that the utility had. Right. They can identify exactly what line fell and started the fire. Exactly. And we just don't have anything like that in Texas. So the fact that there simply was not enough electricity that was being generated to actually serve all of this load was really the problem. And because of the way that uh, the Texas market is structured, it wasn't a requirement for any specific generator to be putting on at that point in time. And so we just don't have the same causality as we saw in California. That's definitely a big difference. Is there any relief that the people that suffered so much in Texas can get? Uh, Is there insurance available for this? Is there any kind of government aid coming through? What What can they look forward to? For the people who have certainly water damage, for example, homeowners insurance hopefully will pay for that. For the people with really high electricity bills, unless the Texas legislature chooses to do something, honestly, it it might almost seem like a case of, of buyer beware. I certainly think that there's obviously more consumer education that needs to happen because it it seems obvious that some of these customers didn't realize that if they accepted a rate that was pegged to that wholesale rate, how high that could go. And of course, that is well known in Texas, um, at least in the energy markets. But it, it definitely seems like people who were signing up for some of these plans didn't necessarily understand how far up the wholesale price could go. $16,000 a day? That seems quite unreasonable. It does. And I think that it's definitely going to be a cautionary tale for other states about what kinds of retail products they allow. And this isn't, to be honest, the first place that we have seen different retail products causing challenges. New York has had some, various other locations have looked at the different types of retail products that are available to consumers, just because it's not necessarily easy for a lot of consumers to understand the different options and the different costs. One of my favorite phrases is that Americans don't think about energy, they just want cold beer and hot showers. (laughs) And unfortunately, we're all going to have to be much more conscious consumers as we look to modify our grid to take climate change into account. And as we try really to to get to fossil-free electricity. We have a long way to go with that. There's certainly a lot of steps that have to be taken with solar and wind and nuclear and hydrogen and 
a whole bunch of other sources. And obviously, interconnections can help with all of that. The more that we can interconnect, not just between Texas and everybody else, but between both the interconnect, the Eastern interconnect and the Western interconnect, that's going to make it so much easier. And of course, one of the things, hopefully, that Texas will think about as they're looking at what actions they take is the vast majority of the time, Texas would probably be an exporter. They have a lot of wind that they could actually be selling to California. But the way we have the interconnects right now, they can't. So hopefully coming out of this, not only will we get better consumer protections, hopefully updated regulatory authority, but also potentially a recognition that we could actually have exports that would benefit the entire country. That sounds good, but although I think we have enough hot air out here in California as it is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Professor Payne, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program, so I'd like to take this opportunity to invite you to share your final thoughts as well as a way our listeners can reach out to you if they'd like to get in touch. Absolutely. I would hope that while Texas ended up in the situation that they did, I think due to a lot of different policy choices, I'm hoping that we can use this as really an instigation to to move all of us forward and recognize that we do need to modernize our electric grid. And I can be reached on Twitter at LawProfPayne. P-A-Y-N-E, right? That's it. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much, Craig. Well, for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.